Hello and welcome to All Things Plantagenet. My name is Donnie Hazel and I am your host. To all my original listeners, welcome back. To all my new listeners, welcome. If you enjoy the podcast and wish to support this show, you can help support it by clicking on the support link in the description of any episode. I have also created a website, www.allthingsplantagenet.com where you can find additional information and resources, as well as the episodes for this podcast. There is also a link on the website to the Facebook page for All Things Plantagenet. Okay, so now on to the show. Hello, my name's Jonathan Foyle. My first job was at Hampton Court as a curator, where I developed a specialism in the late Middle Ages and the Tudor period. I'm now an author on historic buildings, a consultant and lecturer. And this film is about the most extraordinary object I've ever seen. Ian, how did you get to know this bed? That was back in 2010. I'd just arrived back in the country and uh, the bed was advertised at an auction in Chester. I didn't have time to go and view it, so I booked a, a telephone bid. Fortunately, I was successful. You did it online? I saw it online, described as a Gothic revival bed, and at that point I had no reason to think it was anything other than that. So when you saw it, you went to collect it or was it delivered? I was absolutely blown away when I went to collect the bed. I'd never seen anything like it, the craftsmanship in it. I just looked at it and thought, this, this is, it's, it's a complete work of art and very, very powerful. It, uh, it was a power statement. That was my first impression of it. A power statement and not Victorian as you, as you thought it would be when you bought it. Well, for 30 years I've been dealing in beds, usually Georgian, sometimes Victorian beds, often oak, oak frameworks. And I've never seen anything like this. Uh, the level of shrinkage, the oxidisation, the fact that it's been repaired, the front posts have been tipped by eight inches. It just didn't ring true as a Victorian bed. Now, you contacted me in 2012, two years after you came across the bed. Why did you, why did you get in touch with me? I contacted you originally about a bed uh, by Benjamin Goodison, which I believe could have been made for storehouse. I mentioned that I had something else that you might be interested in, uh, an early Royal Tudor bed. And I remember my response to that, which is, don't be daft because everything of the Tudor palaces went with the Civil War. I mean, we simply don't have relics other than one part of a bedstead of Henry VIII that's on display in Glasgow. But other than that, it's just gone. So I thought, I mean, I'll, I'll be honest with you, I thought it was a pretty daft claim to make. But then I came up in January 2013 to see it. I remember it well. I remember you recognised the age of some parts of the bed, but were rather confused about other elements of it. Mm and looking at things, and I can understand why. There's several things on the bed that just don't look correct, but counterintuitively, it, it turned out later that these things are the very things that actually prove it is correct. Oh, 
When I first saw this bed on the 10th of January 2013, my job was to tell whether it was a late medieval bed, as its style might suggest, or whether it was a 19th century interpretation of the Middle Ages. There's a 400-year gap, and it should be pretty easy to tell the difference. But I was faced with something I simply didn't understand. Here is Adam and Eve. Why would you spend the night under an image of original sin. What's that got to do with a supposed king or queen's bed? A bigger problem in my eyes is that a banner wraps around them and it's a biblical script. It's from Corinthians. And the big problem with it is that it's written in English. Now, in the late 15th century, if the style of the bed speaks of that period, it doesn't speak of a Bible written in English because it was only in Henry VIII's reign in the 1530s that he allowed the vernacular language to be the biblical text. So that looked to me to be wrong for the late 15th century. There was another issue. I was looking at the beasts, the lion and the dragon, and they're not the armorial beasts of Henry VII, which is a dragon and a greyhound. The lion and the dragon only came in Henry VIII's reign. So I thought this must be the 19th century having misinterpreted the late Middle Ages and, frankly, got all those details wrong. But it wasn't they who were wrong. It was me. The first and really obvious thing that I noticed about this bed is that it's a fragment. These are the major survivals of a bed. It's not intact, as you'd expect a 19th century bed to be. This rail, for example, is a, a fairly new piece of timber and it slots only into half the depth of this mortise that was prepared for the original rail. So the rail has gone. It's replaced with this. In this same post, you see a very subtle line, about six inches from the bottom, where the bottom of the posts have been re-tipped, probably because of worm damage or something. And you can see lots of worm damage in the lower footboard rail down here. But then there are repairs like this. This has all the hallmarks of a 19th century sawn piece of timber being applied as a repair. And you can see holes here where the pegs that hold the top footboard rail in have been replaced, re-drilled over time when the joint worked itself loose. And have a look at how the worm has eaten its way under the surface just there. When we get higher up, we see at this level maybe even early 20th century repair. Very light oak with a dark stain over the top, which is rubbed off to reveal the newness of this timber, whereas the post itself here has a great depth of colour. So was this a bed of self-evidently old materials cobbled together in the 19th century from bits of salvage? Or is it an essentially intact ancient bed that's just had a long history of usage and repair? We approach that question using science. What kind of science can we use on an object like this bed? Well, if we take, for example, the lions, each of which was cut from the same timber that makes the post that it sits on, then we can look at it in different ways. We can look, for example, at the back and see the saw marks. Now, a very modern piece of timber might have circular saw marks, and that would give away a product of the Industrial Revolution, of mechanised saw power. 
But if we're looking at the late Middle Ages and seeing more or less parallel lines like this, these are quite difficult to diagnose because although England had no mechanised saws at that time and generally had quite rough sawing, the continent was full of water-powered sawmills. Everything depends on exactly where the timber comes from. So the techniques we can throw at it are two main ones. One of them is dendrochronology, where when you look at the ring pattern of the timber, a skilled analyst should be able to identify where the timber comes from because each ring records the climate of that particular summer and winter. Another technique is to look at the surface underneath this typically Victorian looking glazed uh, pew varnish and see whether there might be any remains of colour because if there's one thing about the late Middle Ages it wasn't afraid of colour and so sometimes you find little fragments just tucked away in the corners. On my first encounter with this bed I suggested to Ian he should have dendrochronology done to see whether the tree rings might tell us where the timber was from and at what particular year it was felled. He'd already had that service provided which came back with a devastating result. The bed is supposed to have been made of American white oak growing in the Massachusetts New York area sometime after 1756. A mid-18th century reading for timber didn't make sense for either a late 15th century style bed or a 19th century revival of that style. So a second reading was needed. Meanwhile, I suggested to Ian that the varnish should be analysed to see whether there were any traces of paint, characteristic of either 19th century chemicals or medieval paintwork under the surface. What we needed was someone specialist in the archaeology and chemistry of historic paint finishes. And the person we turned to once led English Heritage's Conservation Lab. Her name is Helen Hughes. Helen, what's involved in your science of paint analysis? Well, paint analysis is basically, I generally work in historic interiors. So I take paint from the walls, paint samples. Uh, and if I look at them in, under high magnification, I can see the plaster or wood substrate. And then I can see all the decorative layers. So what this tells me, uh, it also tells me the colours and the tastes of the people who are living in that houses. But if I analyse the materials, it also gives me an indication of the date of the application of the paint. Helen, what's involved in taking paint samples and analysing them? Well, the first thing you have to do, Jonathan, is to collect the paint samples. And as you know, the bed wasn't obviously painted, but we could detect bits of the paint that had been on the bed, had collected in the sort of the interstices and the depths of the carving. It was crusty. It was crusty, and you can sort of see here, I was sort of more like a dental hygienist, just scraping away these sort of this residue and also I mean you can sort of see how tiny these sort of resi the residue was there. So this residue is um, the original painted surface that's been scraped off and bound up in yeah. Victorian varnish. Victor exactly it seems because what we've got here when we look at it under the microscope we've got paint that has a stratigraphy it has an undercoat a binding layer, a top coat, and then in some cases been embellished with very bright reds, yellows, and in some cases a blue. Um, but this is really special because it does indicate that someone has gone to a lot of effort, time and money and expense 
to paint this bed. Because you're applying um, chemistry, you're looking at things in high-powered microscopes, and you've been doing that for many years. Did it compare closely with other schemes that you'd seen of this period then? Yeah, it was fortunate because when we've been working on that, I was working at Master's House at Ledbury, mm. which is dated 1480s as well. Um, and so we could actually take the, the paint there, again, a very limited palette, very sort of simple iron oxides, iron reds and things. Uh, and we could pair the paint stratigraphy with that from the bed, and they're very similar. Okay, now this is the original painting, because you found, if I remember right, you found many generations. Well, found, well, not many. I found two. Mm. I found signs of wear, again, on the residue, just, just we're fortunate to get that bit, that obviously somebody at some point has come along and done some touching up on the bed. Okay. And if you, if you bear in mind that this bed was designed to be dismounted and transported, then obviously it's going to be a bit of wear and tear. The king, you know, we think it's a high status bed, it will be repaired. Took um, samples from about 100 areas on the bed. They're all carefully labelled. So, I mean, there's enough information here for some PhD student to spend the rest of their life analysing this in far greater detail than I can. This is a major task. It is, yes. Now, Helen, we're analysing an object which might be late medieval, it might be Victorian, or it might be a combination of both those things if it were cobbled together from old material relatively recently. So what could paint tell us? What I can say is in the areas where I did find paint, there was a consistent stratigraphy. So I'm sort of seeing a priming layer, an undercoat, a top coat, and in some cases a sort of a, a figuring of the wood on the top. Um, and that seems to be common to all the areas of the bed that I found. And I did sample a lot of areas. I mean, I must have... So roughly, what, what, what percentage of the bed seems to have been treated in a uniform way? I would think that the whole thing must have been primed undercoat and treated with this sort of base brown, let's call it a, a green in colour, from what I can see, because my, my, my samples were fairly extensive, you know, from the, the, the bed post at the bottom to the top and the head and, and all of the, the lions. Um, so I can say with sort of relative confidence that it seems to be an overall paint stratigraphy that was applied to the entire bed. So you're saying that, that all the parts of the bed were treated in a uniform way, which suggests that it was made at one point in time. There are, however, a number of fairly obvious repairs on the bed. Yes. Did you compare the surface of the repaired parts? Yes, because you pointed out that the ends of the, the legs had been replaced and, and there was nothing on those. They were you know, so as clean as a whistle. Then, of course, we have traces of a more expensive elaboration that lies over the graining. Uh, and that was carried out in very high quality iron oxide colours. So we've got purples, reds, yellows, very high iron content that suggests they're very expensive pigments. And then we've also found, but only on the bedhead, tiny traces of ultramarine blue. Ultramarine. Ultramarine. Now, this was very expensive. You can imagine that it was mined in Afghanistan. Lumps of it were taken across to Venice. This is, this is lapis lazuli. This is lapis lazuli, a very expensive, precious stone. Uh, got to Venice, it would have been processed, very laborious process to process into pigments. So it would have been smuggled in the captain's top pocket and classed as a high-class spice. So uh, you've been working in paint for 30 years, yes. may I say? Yes. Um, how often do you come across early 
use of ultramarine? On, on architectural elements, on furniture, um, almost never. This utterly rare and highly expensive material. Be cheaper to use gold. In the spectrum of easy to impossible, could somebody have contrived this scheme as a faker to kid you that you're looking at 500-year-old paint when it's actually just 100 years old? No, Jonathan, it would be impossible because I've tried and I can't even fail, fool myself. I mean, I'm often asked to recreate historic schemes and we've got all the information, we can buy all the pigmentations, we can make it, um, we can collaborate with the best painters and decorators. But at the end of the day, when we think we've done quite well, if I take a sample of my own paint system, my own recreated scheme, look at it under the microscope, it's, it misses by a mile in terms of the texture of the paint, the subtlety of the application. Um, so I would say it would be impossible as an archaeologist and historian, I don't question science lightly, but the results of the paint analysis meant that a second opinion on the dendrochronology was now inevitable. What was discovered in the second opinion were several remarkable things. Firstly, of ten samples drawn, all seemed to be so closely matched that they were from the same tree. Now that corroborated the results of the paint, which told us that this was one essentially intact object. The tree was felled at one point in time. It was then uniformly coloured. When was this tree felled? Well, the second opinion showed us that it was undateable oak. It didn't come up with an American result, but said it was undateable because every four years there was disturbance in the tree rings. And that is typical of what's called the cockchafer beetle, which lives in Central Europe. They have a four-year cycle of infestation, whereas in America, the cycle is three years. For a fourth opinion, we then went to DNA, the new science which tells us where the origin of timber is. Now, this is generally used for illegal forestation, but we went to a company who had done the DNA on the Mary Rose ship. And they took several samples from the lions, which we know are cut from the same timber as the posts, and part of the headboard. And what they found is that all of the results which came back with a positive reading were of European oak. And the centre of gravity was in the area around Bavaria, Austria, or the Czech Republic. What we now had then was irrefutable evidence that this was not only an ancient bed, if still undateable by its timber, it did have paint characteristic of the late Middle Ages. The question then, now we know how old it is, is what does it tell us? The headboard can be read like a book. The book is generally the Bible. And in the late Middle Ages, the Bible had a typology behind it. That means a type and anti-type. For every problem, there's a solution. So the beginning of the Bible was Genesis and mankind being cast out of paradise. The end of the Bible is the mirror opposite. It's the return to paradise in Revelation. And that is what these characters show. They're not just Adam and Eve, but they're the answer to Adam and Eve. Here is Christ and the Virgin undoing the sins of Adam and Eve because they hold in their hands not the apple of temptation 
but the apple as a symbol of salvation. And that's why this snake-like creature still has the apple in its beak. A snake with a beak, you say, that can't give away temptation? It's a curious-looking animal. It's not something that's going to be obvious to a Victorian eye, but it certainly was to the medieval eye, because this creature is a basilisk, or cockatrice, which means basically a chicken's head on a serpent. And we read about that in the Bible in Psalm 90. Now, this is one of the royal psalms, and its importance is that it was recited at bedtime when monarchs went to bed. It's the last thing they heard. And that makes sense of these two characters, which I'd misunderstood as being Henry VIII's heraldry. Because when a cockatrice is coupled with a small lion and then a dragon, these are the three symbols of Psalm 90, all symbolic of evil, which are trampled by Christ and the Virgin. So these saviours are overcoming symbols of evil. Absolutely ingrained medieval piece of imagery. Next to Henry, if this is the king, and the profile suggests that it is, with a slightly aquiline nose, is this symbol. It's an acorn, and this is symbolic of male fertility. From acorns, mighty oaks grow. On her side, and she in turn, very much has the profile of Elizabeth of York, you see here a bunch of grapes. Biblically, Mary gave her son, and in church, the grapes were turned to the communion wine, which symbolised Christ's blood. So now you have two symbols identifying these characters, both from fertility and the giving of blood. Now, in a marital bed, this is exactly what you'd expect to see. It's all about this couple as saviours whose offspring were intended to consolidate their union and save the nation. When we look at the royal arms flanking them, and only monarchs had the license to use the royal arms in this comprehensive way, without any family symbolism to the contrary. Then you see this wonderful uh, figures like strawberries in here, symbolic of paradise. You see blackberries also to do with the crown of thorns and Christ's blood. All of these uh, with roses as well of Mary's purity and the red ones being again, blood sacrifice, all of this is absolutely, intrinsically, faultlessly medieval. So if that's what it tells us then, is a couple in union overthrowing sin, what about this script from Corinthians? The biggest problem I had with it is that this script was written in English, and strictly that wasn't legal until Henry VIII allowed the Bible to be produced in English in the late 1530s. But what if this was a secondary script? There's one rule about added scripts on objects like this. They can't stand proud of the surface. You can't invent layers of wood. They have to be incised if they're secondary. Originally, the Banderole script would have simply been painted onto the surface of the timber. Similar plain surfaces still exist on the Banderoles of the crests. And when you look closely at examples in Lancashire, in particular of scripts that surround the Stanley family that Henry's mother had married into, you see precisely this kind of script used in the early 16th century. If this then was additional, you'd expect it to relate to a Bible in maybe 1530 to 50. And indeed, in 1537, a Bible was published with exactly this English spelling, which King Edward VI the Protestant and the scourge of Catholics 
also used in his prayer book. This then would seem to be a secondary addition to turn what is a, a bed of highly Catholic symbolism into something acceptable to a Protestant audience who read the plain words of English. And those words are, the sting of death is sin, the strength of sin is the law. By applying these words, the mysticism of Adam and Eve and Christ and the Virgin was reduced to a simple Protestant tale of good and evil. And that is a fascinating part of the bed story. Who in the 19th century could have invented that kind of precise multi-layered history for this object. There's one piece of symbolism which really sealed the deal for me on this bed's authenticity, and it's these figures here. They look like flowers, don't they? But in fact, they're flaming stars, and they appear in Christ's hand in the book of Revelation when he delivers the tree of life when paradise is returned. It's all part of the same biblical source, but this is very specific to monarchs because the seven stars symbolized the seven gifts of the Holy Spirit qualities of wisdom and governance conferred upon kings and queens at the point of coronation. What's doubly remarkable and rather obscure knowledge is that the seven stars were wheeled out as a major symbol for the marriage pageant of Henry and Elizabeth's eldest son, Arthur, when he was married to Catherine of Aragon in 1501. We've seen what the symbolism tells us about the bed, but what about the style? Who made it and, and when and why? When we look at all this organic vegetation, we're looking at a, a court mode of the 1470s through to 90s. It comes from Germany and it swept Europe's courts by storm. It's worth remembering that Henry VII, who's often argued to be a Welsh king, in fact spent his youth in Brittany, where he was in exile amongst the French courts and had access to these developing European modes. So when he came to the throne in 1485, he had a very open European sensibility. He understood the way in which foreign ambassadors should witness a major piece of statecraft, like the presentation of the royal bed. When we look closely at the details, though, we can see brattishing in areas like this, which you'll find in East Anglian churches in particular. And at the top of these posts are oculi, which are rather specific to Suffolk. So it would seem that in this oak-rich area of Suffolk, the king's master carpenter was interpreting a European court style to present in front of the eyes of Europe. What the bed looks like is one thing, but can we show that it belonged to some kind of school? Is there any comparable work that can be securely dated, which really pins this in the era that it seems to belong to? Well, in spring 2014, I had the most extraordinary tip-off that an early antiques specialist in Chelsea had four posts, and they were all identical to these. They had the same linen fold, and then the double-stepped base, a rope moulding, this fine pointed diaper, more rope moulding, double capital, and then the oculi. When the four posts were laid out on the floor of the dealer's shop, I was astonished because they were self-evidently ancient, much older than the 19th century. They'd had a life as salvage where they'd been hidden away in a wall. 
One of them had a flame scorch, typical of joinery practice from the 15th through to the 17th century. It's a, a kind of witch mark to appease fire sprites because that was a great danger. But more importantly, in the middle of them were knobs, much like those framed square chunks in the middle of the headboard of this bed. But the knobs on these posts told us who they were made for. One had an H, another part of an R, and another had a fleur-de-lis, which matched those on the bed. They were made by the same workshop, and the four posts now on the floor, having been pulled out of a stud wall after several hundred years, had an original life around the walls of a royal interior, having framed panels. And what Helen Hughes found is that the posts have exactly the same kind of paint finish as the bed, coal black and red iron oxide. The final piece of scientific evidence came in March 2017. The tree rings of the clearly medieval wainscot posts were found to match those of the bed's timbers. Though none can be dated in absolute terms, we can now say that both were made by the same medieval workshop. We now had more work from the workshop of the bed, which proved when it was made in the late 15th century for H.R. Since the discovery of the matching post, this bed is no longer an object in splendid isolation that might be 15th century, might be 19th century. The two things were made by the same workshop with knowledge of each other, by the same hands, and they were made for one particular person, H.R. Ian, accounting for the story of this bed over half a millennium has proved a tall order. But where did you first think it had come from? Well, yeah, it had challenges. It was a tall order. But uh, initial research had, had thrown up a couple of examples that were very, very similar from the Lancashire area, one being the Thomas Stanley bed, the other being the Lovely Hall bed. I realised there'd been a royal visit there. Henry and Elizabeth had gone to see Margaret Beaufort and Thomas Stanley in the summer of 1495. So my assumption was that the bed was possibly made as a gift for them, certainly to accommodate them. The royal lodgings were built there for that visit, and it made perfect sense at the time that the bed was part of that scheme. One thing I remember on the first visit to the bed, you uh, almost nonchalantly flipped open your research folder, and I was stunned because I saw a photograph of an 1840s copy of this. Not a particularly good copy either, by someone called George Shaw. How did you come across George Shaw? As part of the research, I realised this gentleman, George Shaw, had actually copied the bed. Well, I believed he had copied the bed. I could see two examples of a much smaller bed that were clearly mechanical in their nature. They lacked the beautiful proportions of this one. To my eye, it was clearly evident that they were copies. Eventually, I went to George Shaw's house, which is in Upper Mill in Saddleworth. And as part of that journey, I was accompanied by a historian who'd been transcribing some of his diaries. We went into what was his library, and as I returned out of the library, I saw the missing crest from the bed being used as a pediment above his door. So what did George Shaw's both copying and then cannibalising this bed tell you? George Shaw was obviously in awe of this bed because much of the decoration in his house was inspired by decoration we see here on the bed. I mean, his fireplace was the typical triptych uh, arrangement we have here on the headboard, just a more fanciful Strawberry Hill type uh, canopy to it. 
We've now got enough information to see the age of this bed, the fact that it was very highly coloured and with the richest pigments, and that it matched the joinery of royal interiors. Also, without doubt, is that this image is solely specific to a royal wedding. When we look through the chronicles of Henry and Elizabeth's reign, Bernard André, their French chronicler, tells us that in late 1485, a marriage bed was prepared for them. They were married on the 18th of January 1486 in Westminster Palace, and there's only one place that marriage bed could have gone. It's in the Painted Chamber, a room made for Henry III. Now, the Painted Chamber is gone today. It burned in 1834, and this watercolourist called Stoddhart shows a mural 11 feet across. It's divided into five arches of double and single proportion. Therefore, the middle three constitute half the width, five feet six. That is the width of the bed. And remarkably, when you set up the headboard panels against those arches, one determines the other. That answers the question of why doesn't this four-poster bed carry drapes? Because after all, isn't that what four-poster beds are for? This one has no evidence of drapes for the specific reason that at Westminster the drapes were carried on external posts, giving a corridor around the bed, a bit like a hospital bed. And the further benefit that that held is that included within that space was this opening, a catrefoil through to the chapel of St Lawrence next door. And when the priest at that chapel recited night prayers or compline, he included, through the use of Psalm 90, reference to the three beasts that the royal couple themselves within this bed are shown trampling. A more integrated, perfectly suited work of art I cannot imagine. The very precise imagery about fertility and marriage shows that the bed doesn't and cannot belong to the 1490s. By 1495, they'd had four children. But the bed could have accompanied them to Lancashire, now having fulfilled its promise of delivering issue. Indeed, in that year, a new bed was made for Westminster with a mattress six inches wider than this the first of a whole series of beds that went up to 11 feet across and in fact filled the whole width of this mural. This was the end of the age of enclosed posts. It was the beginning of an age when royal style would influence Lancashire's joinery. Through the 17th century, the bed appears in a number of remarkable ways in the area between Lancashire and Yorkshire. First, in 1500, Henry and Elizabeth apparently having left the bed at Latham House. Thomas Stanley, Henry's stepfather, who with Henry's mother, Margaret Beaufort, owned Latham, made a series of beds by his regional Lancashire workshop, which took this essential design and slightly more clumsily rendered it in um, a regional vernacular style. Several of those beds survive to this day. And they survived because they all emerged from Latham House during the process of the Civil War. By that time, John Speed, the antiquarian and mapmaker, had visited Lancashire to make a map of the county. He showed on his map a picture of Henry VII and Elizabeth of York. In the same year, he made the frontispiece to the King James Bible. And as part of that frontispiece, in the so-called genealogies, he showed Adam and Eve 
in a very similar pose to this bed, but more remarkably, with the same biblical text wrapped around them in a banner. The difference between the bed and Speed's version is that Speed rejected the 1537 Bible and indeed went for the updated Geneva Bible, which was current in his own lifetime. So he updated the picture that the bed showed him when he visited Lancashire and no doubt went into the inner sanctum of Latham House. There, in 1593, Latham had, according to its inventory, not one, but two state beds of uneven value. One was worth £20, the other worth £13. This is the one that would be valued at £20. Thomas Stanley's inferior copy was the £13 bed. Both those beds exist because when the Roundheads opened cannon fire on Latham, we have a diary entry to explain that the beds propped the gatehouse against the cannon fire. The daughter of the Countess of Derby held out against the parliamentarians, married into a Yorkshire family, into the Wentworths. And in 1695, we learn through an inventory at Wentworth Woodhouse that she brought with her the two state beds that were from Latham into that fine house near the Pennines, just south of Huddersfield. Then in 1842, after a century of silence, a remarkable man called George Shaw, an early antiquarian, went to an old house near Huddersfield and there he found a dilapidated bed. After its repair, he said, it would be one of the first and finest of its kind. This object is so specific, it can only be the marriage bed of Henry VII and Elizabeth of York. It's not only got royal arms, but the rose symbols, the dynastic red and white roses, which show this couple, whose facial profiles match portrayals of them, uh, of their early reign, in a moment of marriage, speaking of fertility, which was answered later in 1486 by the birth of their first son, Arthur. You might call this the birthplace of the Tudors. But it's more than that. When you read the imagery, it's a manifesto of their reign, which starts to make all kinds of new sense out of manuscripts and documents and places which have not, to date, provided us with the full picture. This is the place to come. But moreover, this is the place that they knew. The absolute focus of royal identity was the journey through a now lost palace where people would have seen this brightly coloured, almost like an altar by which to frame that royal couple. It's survival. The fact it's cheated time allows us to relive that experience and view the dawn of the Tudor dynasty with ancient eyes.
Thank you for listening to this episode of All Things Plantagenet. Remember, we also have a website, www.allthingsplantagenet.com, where you can find additional information and resources, as well as the other episodes. Thank you for listening, and have a great day.